we are in our series on James entitled Real Life, Real Faith. In the past few weeks, we've been going uh, piece by piece through the book of James and seeing how uh, the book of James is extremely practical and applies to our everyday lives. Uh, yesterday, I was in a meeting with Mark Underwood, who's from our Sugar Grove campus, and he actually is a, uh, I'm not exactly sure what his title is, but he does a lot of like remodeling and renewing uh, outdoor spaces. And so we have a uh, front stoop um, where you come in and it's starting to crumble. And so we're looking to do some remodeling of it. And we were in conversation just about the stoop and what the project's going to look like and costs and all of these different things. And, and in our conversation, he starts talking about a thing called farmer's steps. And I, I grew up in a, in a rural area. And I never heard of this. And he said that actually farmhouses, the way that they used to be built, and they, they'd have their stairs and they'd all be even, but one step was actually made different in size than the other steps. And it was intentional because if you were a friend and being out on the farm, um, there's a, usually nothing for several miles and people can come and take different things. And um, I, I, I grew up with my grandparents were farmers and we would have people steal things all the time. Um, so we would have to be very, very careful. And they says that these farmer steps were very interesting. A friend who knew the steps would be able to walk through the steps without any problems. But a person who wasn't a friend, who was a stranger, would come and they would trip on that step because it was a different size. It was unexpected. And then they would hear them fall, and then the people in the house would know that there was a guest that was coming. And it gave them time to recognize and kind of prepare themselves for this person, whoever it might be, whether it's a friend or it was a foe. So they could prepare themselves. And I thought it was very, very interesting. And as I was thinking about that, and I was uh, contemplating the message for today and and walking through the steps, I was reminded of what uh, the subject that we're looking at today, and it's the subject of repentance. And in in many of our churches today, that's become the step that a lot of people trip over because many people that uh, come to church may not know who God is. Because, see, many of the churches begin to compromise the faith of Christ and turn from Christ. And so repentance has become a foreign thing. Matter of fact, sin has become such a part of our culture today that it's not just tolerated, but it's celebrated. And if you're seeking to do righteousness, then you become an enemy. Uh, This past week, Pastor Tim Keller, who is a pastor of Redeemer uh, Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, was to receive uh, an award from Princeton Theological Seminary. It was actually called the Abraham Kuyper Award for uh, Accomplishments in Theology. And uh, as he was getting ready to receive this reward, um, some people from the the seminary, specifically the LBGTQ, I can't keep all the initials, uh, came and uh, said that his theology was toxic because he held certain theological positions that have actually been held for the last 2,000 years. And so that caused the seminary to rescind this reward, an award to him. And, in, and, and people started debating his theology. And his theology was, he said that there was such a thing called sexual immorality. Homosexuality was a sin. And he recognized these different statements. And because that he had these certain theological convictions holding fast to the word of God, they said his theology was toxic. Now, in such, such a mindset has become increasingly prevalent in our society so that when we talk about the subject of repentance... It falls on deaf ears because people, if everything's okay, what do I need to repent of? And that's the, the reality. And so you see a lot of churches that are growing cold, but yet churches like his are thriving because they're preaching the Word of God. And we see that the Word of God shows that we are to, as believers in Christ, we can't miss or trip over this step. That if we truly know who God is, that we will practice this, this uh, discipline of repentance. Now, what is Repentance. Several years ago, 
I was at a uh, mosque in Chicago, and I was talking and interviewing an imam, and I was there as an assignment uh, for the school that I attended, and I was allowed to ask questions, but I was not allowed to uh, rebut or engage in discussion. I just had to listen to what he had to say. And he did ask some questions, and he, he, uh, I said, he goes, well, how are you saved within Christian tradition? I said, we are saved by placing our faith and our trust in Christ. And he goes, well, how do you do that? And I said, well, we, we believe, and then we're to repent and believe. This is what Jesus said. And I'm thinking, I got my, my theology down. He goes, repentance then is a work. You are not just saved by faith or grace, as you say, but you have to work your way to God just like we do. I said, what do you mean by that? He goes, you have to do a work of repentance. And it really puzzled me. Is repentance a work that we have to do to be okay in God's sight? Can we earn God's favor by doing our repentance? And the reality is it's not. I like how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, repentance is not a work. It's simply describing what going back to God looks like. I like that. It's simply a description of what running back to God, to turning to God, what it looks like. It's not a work. That's entirely our salvation is by grace through faith, believing in what God has done. For us in Christ. And we are simply, uh, and we are seeing today in this passage that the Holy Spirit has spoken to James and has shown him and us and the people that he was writing to of what repentance looks like in our day to day lives and what going back to God looks like when we know we've sinned. And, and the people that James was writing to were writing to were, were greatly guilty of sin. We have this tendency to look at the people of the New Testament as far and away from us with these, these holy saints wearing halos and emanating light. And we fail to remember that they were common everyday folks just like us that were susceptible to being tired, to not getting enough sleep, to dealing with family stresses and, and spousal, I mean, conflicts between your spouse, having a hard time at your work. They were just like us. And we see, and as we have seen, as we've gone through this amazing uh, book so far, we've seen that they had a lot of issues they were struggling with. They had a hard time, they had a hard time taming their tongue. They were showing partiality to rich people when they came in. They had this idea that they could be saved uh, or have faith and not do anything about it. Um, matter of fact, they, they coveted, they really gave into their fleshly desires so bad that they were even willing and did murder someone. That's how bad this was. And so James is writing to address the issues in this church. And as we saw last week, he's addressed worldliness. As we learned what worldliness, it's known as the spirit of the age, or as David F. Wells said, worldliness or the world is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. It's the pervading thought of the age because this world is under the control of the evil one that God has given it over for a time, and Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see and know the light and life of Christ. So we see then that, uh, that this church had been given over to worldliness. They'd indulged all of their sinful flesh. Uh, they were kind of backbiting with one another. They were gossiping one another. And now he's saying, no, 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 no. If you're a true believer in Christ, I'm going to share this with you. And you need to understand you've been wrong. And when you are wrong, when you have sinned like this, this is how you need to respond to restore this fellowship with God. You can't play around with sin. You can't try to make it famous or make it okay and get people to engage with you in it because God condemns it. If you want to see how bad sin is, look at the cross. Look at what God has done on, with, in Christ on the cross. And we see what our sin required in the sight of God. So James then now writes to address and show us what this 
repentance is. So I'd, I'd ask us all to take a moment to pause and let's ask God together to speak to us during this time that He might show us through His Word if we have any offensive way within us that needs to be confessed and repented of and that we might be able to do that uh, which is necessary to show the depth of our sorrow before God, the reality of us wanting to do whatever is necessary to be right with God. So let's, show, and let's ask God to show us what real repentance is as we study His Word together. So let's pause for a moment and open our hearts to God's Holy Spirit and ask Him to show us what He has for us today. So let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, You are God, we are not. We know that we have nothing apart from ourselves. Oh, it's so often that we have thought we're of ourselves more highly than we should. And we have failed to understand the reality of what sin is and what the cross really means. Lord, you know how guilty we are day in and day out. You know the websites we visited, the people we've engaged with, the things we've said, the thoughts and actions in our hearts. And Lord, you know, you know the depth and reality of our condition. But Lord, we also know that you're the gracious and forgiving God and that with you there is hope. With you there is forgiveness of sins. And Lord, show us today, give us a blueprint as we study your word together to see what it is that you have for us in your word and that we might enter in and see what this repentance or going back to God looks like. Lord, convict us. Let not the enemy have a foothold in our lives. And let not our flesh rule the day. But may we truly enter in to the victory that Christ has achieved through the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So bless us, grow us, and use us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in James chapter 4. It starts off in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now, it's interesting. This first word here, matter of fact, this entire passage that we're studying today is filled with imperatives. These are all commands. They're not suggestions. Uh, This is one, the first, of actually ten different commands that he gives in this passage. James is commanding. He's saying that this is not optional. This is not that you can have an addition to the Christian life. This is absolutely an essential part of what you you and I are to do to show the reality of our relationship with God. That we are to submit. And the word here, actually in Greek, is a military term. It means giving up one's right, yielding oneself to the power of another for them to do as they wish. The idea still here is of order, surrendering to one who is superior rank to someone else. And he's saying now, I want you to submit, to surrender to me and all that I have for you in Christ. And that's the first thing that we have to learn, that real repentance requires us to submit to God completely, unreservedly, giving up everything to him. See, we have this tendency, we want to give a little to God, and then we want to say, what's the limit of what I can do and then pull back? I was talking with a man the other day. He said, I need to know, how much do I give myself on behalf of someone else? And do I continue to give, and when is it okay to pull it back? And, and the question we, that I asked in response was, is what did Jesus do? He, he gave himself entirely until he went to the cross. 
See, we are to submit ourselves to God completely, not holding back, not holding on to a different sin, not keeping part of it to ourselves. We have to completely submit or yield, surrender to God completely. Now, the second command that he gives us is in verse 7. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil is God's mortal enemy. He is a fallen angel. He is not omniscient, meaning he doesn't know everything. He is not all-powerful. He is like a dog on a chain. He is limited. The devil is God's devil. He cannot go beyond what God allows him to do. But he is an evil spirit creature who masquerades as an angel of light, who also is a liar and the father of lies, whose purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy anything that's in relation to God's kingdom. That he wants to destroy completely your life. And we have to learn to resist the devil. Now it's interesting. If we go back in verses, uh, in the preceding verses of James chapter 4, we had learned uh, in previous weeks in verse 1 that there were fights and quarrels among the people because their passions were at war within them. And we also know that he condemned a friendship with the world. And now we have the, the third in the triad of our enemies. That as Christians, we have our enemies are the world, this fallen system that is antithetical or is, is against God. We have our flesh, this fallen uh, flesh that we have, the, the remnants of our unredeemed humanity, if you will. And then we have the devil. Now, when we often think in our American Western culture of the devil, we don't like talking about the devil too much for, for the fear of if we talk about him, then we have to deal with him. And that's a reality. Whereas many of with, that come from Africa or from Asia, you have an encounter and understanding of the demonic realm where, uh, where there were uh, witch doctors or where people, um, we were even sharing yesterday, where someone would say they, they wouldn't even reveal their pregnancy because they were afraid a witch doctor would put a spell upon them and cause them to miscarry. And so there would be bizarre incidents. There would be outright manifestations. And in our Western culture, that's not as seen as much. And I think that the devil is not just working in majority world cultures, but he's working with a different tactic in our world today. And I think what he's doing, rather than coming out in bizarre manifestations, he's killing us in our Western culture softly. Rather than waking up the warriors of Christ, he's slowly, calmly, through their entertainments, their comforts, their conveniences, through their, their social interactions, slowly but softly killing people. He's lulling the church to sleep like carbon monoxide in a home. It may not detect it, but it can kill you. And that's what the devil's doing in our lives today. I was reading about how many different Christians are, are feeling and going around with this oppression and how the devil's working in their lives. And it just it really broke my heart to read. And, and, and many of you know it exactly what it's like. You may not have not realized it was Satan or the devil working in your life, but when you hear these condemning thoughts, it says you'll never be good enough. You'll never be able to do what God wants. You just sinned last night. Why do you even go to church? You're such a hypocrite. Why even talk to somebody about your faith? Why even get up in the morning? Why don't you just kill yourself? You know what? Why are you? You are so fat and ugly and stupid, and you'll never advance. And people, you're a sellout. No one's going to know. And, and you hear these accusations over and over again. You don't ever talk to anybody about Jesus. How can you call yourself a Christian? You don't do anything for God. And these, these words of condemnation keep coming and coming and coming. Here's how you know it's a demonic voice that's whispering to you when it's continually saying you. You, 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 
you. It's the devil trying to lull you softly. And we have to recognize that the devil is at work. And remember, as we saw, for those who were here last week, we saw that the world, the flesh, and the devil can't always be separated, but they operate in tandem with one another. That the devil also is a fisherman, just like Jesus is. That the devil takes the, the, the fishing rod and puts at the end of it the hook of the world and puts the bait of your flesh. And so it's the devil directing things to get you to bite the world with your flesh and your wants, just trying to get you to bite he wants to get you to sin. He wants you to pour you to tear you down. He wants to get you to, to think of this as just outside of the norm and you just don't need to be a part of it and you can forget about it and it's not that big a deal. And he wants to minimize who God is and, and, and just maximize your pleasure and your entertainment or the peer pressures around you to minimize God's presence. But let me tell you something. God's word will be accomplished. He has promised that this world is passing away along with its desires, but those who do the will of God will abide forever. And that we have to recognize that our enemy, it says that he prowls around like a roaring lion. The devil is around looking for someone to devour. And if he's got you doing nothing, then he's got you. Because see, he likes to intimidate. He's a bully. He's a bully. He wants to intimidate you into submission so you don't do anything for God, and then he'll, he'll pretend to leave you alone. But the reality is, is he's got you. We have to learn to resist the devil. And the word that's here in Greek, the way that it talks about us resisting, is, is the idea of taking a contrary position, a complete stand against, to establish one's position publicly by conspicuously holding one's ground, refusing to be moved. I have this picture in my head of the Lord of the Rings when Gandalf is battling this big giant demon Balrog, and he's on this little bridge, and he says, you shall not pass, and he throws that staff down. It's a great picture. That's how we're to resist the devil. No, you're not going to get a hold in my life. No, you're not going to hold my pass against me. No, you're not going to bring that sin out any longer in my life. It was paid for at Calvary. I don't have to do that any longer. I don't have to listen to the devil's lies. That I can do what God wants me to do. That I have a power in my life and I don't have to give in to you. See, I, I, I think we, we sometimes give the devil, I mean, we have to understand that he's a powerful individual, but we also can't give him more credit than he's due, and he wants to take more credit than he can. See, I like to look at the devil as one of those guys that works at a call center. Now, if you work at a call center, forgive me for this illustration, but uh, you get calls at inconvenient times, and are they annoying? And I've learned, if I don't recognize, I'm like, hello, bloop. <laughs> See, the devil calls, I just resist. I don't have to, and he's going to quit calling you back. Because, see, it says here, if you resist him, he'll flee from you. Because it's just like a call center. It's a numbers game. They make a quick pitch. If you bite, they stay on the phone. If you don't, they hang up, try another person, go on to the next one. The devil's trying to get you to sin. If you resist, bloop, he hangs up, goes on to the next person. And then the next person, and the next person, and the next person. Now, he'll come back to you. But we have this promise within his word that if we resist the devil who's a very real individual, that he will flee from us. So we have to understand that. Now the second thing that we see here, notice back within our text in James chapter 4, in verse 8, after we resist the devil, he will flee from you. We're, we're given this other command. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's a great verse. Now, the word for draw there is actually a very interesting verse in Greek, uh, actually word in Greek. It's this idea of intimate association, of closeness, proximity. 
It's like when Jesus came to earth, God came near. He came among us. He came close to us to identify in our struggles and in in all of our life situations. And that's what we have going on here. He's saying, draw near to God. In other words, run to God and you'll find that God's running to you. And that's what we're to do. If we're to submit to God completely, we have to resist the devil. But we have to understand that nature abhors a vacuum. And if you're turning away from Satan, you've got to turn to something else. So you have to run to God. And I love this picture that God then will draw near to you. And it, it reminded me of the parable of the prodigal son that we talked about a lot in our, in our, in, in our church. It's such a great passage. Because remember, this prodigal goes to his dad and says, basically, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now because I want to do whatever I want to do. And because of his love, he says, here you go, son. I love you. He goes, thanks, Dad. And he goes off and parties. You know, he's, he's going to all the clubs, and the, the music's thumping, he's buying everybody drinks, he's hanging out, having hookups. I mean, it, it, it could be today. He's having a good time, but the money runs out, and then a famine hits the land. It's a crisis, financial crisis is going on. Whole, whole area goes into recession. He's forced to get a job working at a pig farm feeding pigs, which for a Jew is incomprehensible and absolutely disgusting finally comes to the end of himself when he realizes the pigs are eating better than himself, and he says, I'm going to go back to my dad, and I'm going to, I'm going to apologize. I'm going to admit I was wrong and see if he'll take me back, not as a son, because I'm not worthy of that, but as one of his servants. So he goes all mucked up with, you know, pig manure on him. He's got dirty stinks. He hasn't bathed in a long time. He's coming back to see his dad, and this is the really cool part of the text. It says that his father was looking for him and sees him when he's a long way off. And then it says, and this is an amazing part, that when uh, Arabic translators were actually translating this passage in Luke chapter 15, it says that he took up his garments and girded his loins and ran to his son. And to an Arabic mind, that was incomprehensible. How could a man of such stature, of such position, of such reputation, run to his humiliated son who's deserving of death. And it's to show God's love for us, that God is humbling himself and running to us. And we find that when we're running back to God, he's already running to us. And that's what he's saying here in this passage. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. And the idea there is that God will give you help. God will give you grace. God will give you comfort. See, when you run to God, he's already running to you. That's the great love that our Savior has for us. It's amazing truth, but that's not all. We get into some down and dirty details here in James chapter 4. Notice what else he says. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Now, the word cleanse and purify are actually terms that were used uh, to talk about ceremonial objects that would be used in the temple. And he's using this term to say, I want you to reclaim these things uh, on behalf of God. And he's hearkening back to Old Testament understanding of language of things. When the Jewish temple stood, that there were these sacred utensils that would be used in the praise of God. And what would happen is, is the Jewish people had a tendency to turn away from God, and they would invite pagan religions in, and they would take the very temple that would be set apart for God and started using it to worship their pagan deities. And then what would happen is a new king would rise up who would seek to uh, reinstall um, or reissue faith in God. And so what they would do then is they'd have to reconsecrate these utensils for the glory of God. And it would be through cleansing, through water, through burning. I mean, it was to, to remove any impure elements. And he's saying, I want you to reclaim compromised territory in your life. And notice what he talks about. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Your hands. Your hands. Your periphery, your hearts, you, and then you, double-minded, hand, heart, head. It's the entirety of who we are. 
you have to give those areas back to God. You have to reclaim that territory. Maybe you're a person who says, I've just been looking at pornography over and over and over again. You've got to rededicate your mind to God. You've got to renew that to God. Whether your action was used to steal something or hurt someone, you have to reclaim and reclaim that territory back for God. Your heart, giving over those desires and asking God to come in and reign in your heart, your head, and your hands in the entirety of your life. To reclaim these areas. For God. And that's what submission to God looks like. I'm giving up. I am offering myself now as a living sacrifice to God. Not just a part of me, not just my hand, not just my head, not just my feet. Lord, take all of me. That's what submitting to God completely is. It's yielding the entirety of who we are, and not just physically, mentally, emotionally, our aspirations, our careers, our families, everything about who we are to God. That's what he's talking about. Now, notice the next set of commands in verse 8. Well, actually, not the next set of commands. Excuse me. I want to show you exactly what this reclaiming looks like. In Acts chapter 19, uh, the Apostle Paul had been doing ministry to the Ephesians. And they were, many of them had come to saving faith in Christ. And he's saying, you need to reclaim parts of your compromised territory to God. And this is what they did. Also, many of those who now were believers came confessing. That's part of, again, yielding ourselves, is agreeing with God about our sins and divulging their practices. They weren't going to let it be hidden anymore. They're going to let it all out. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, You might say, I can't give up that sin. I've given too much time. I've put too much energy. That's why this is in the text, by the way, is to show how much it really costs. They were willing to give up everything. They're willing to give up all their money, everything to be made right with God and to show the reality of their willing to be made right with God by getting rid of all of the things that caused them to sin. They're reclaiming what is God's. They're saying, God, this had my heart. This had my mind. I'm getting rid of it. What do you need to get rid of? Let's have a hold of your heart and your mind. What other people say about you? Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your power. Maybe it's your children. Maybe you've been swiping through stuff you shouldn't be swiping through. Maybe you've been going to places. Maybe you've been looking at things that you shouldn't be. You need to offer it up. You need to give it up. That's what it looks like. You can't hold on to it. You've got to let it go. You have to yield it to God. We've got to reclaim compromised territory. Now let's look at verse 9. This is where the rubber meets the road. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's how the English Standard Version translates it. I like the New Living Translation a little bit better. I think it brings it out a little bit more in contemporary way that we speak. It says this, Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. See, what he's saying there is you need to take stock of your life. And you need to be, have real sorrow for sin. See, that's one of the, the hallmarks of real repentance is that real repentance or godly repentance leads us to do whatever is necessary to be made right with God. Worldly repentance is just, I'm sorry that I got caught. Godly repentance is saying, I'm willing to do whatever God needs me to do to be made right with him or what he wants me to do, and I'll do whatever. I'll take whatever humiliation, whatever demotion, whatever paycheck, you know, to be cut, whatever it needs to be, I'll, I'll do it because that's what God wants. And then God will be with you through that. In other words, we need to take stock of ourselves here. 
we need to take and understand how much our sin really, what it really means. And that requires us to scrutinize ourselves honestly. Scrutinize, which meaning look at it intensely to really sit in judgment upon it because the reality is we like to, we like to uh, excuse ourselves. We like to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. It's not that bad or this is what was going through me at the time. And we take ways to justify, rationalize, excuse it, whatever we can do. But we need to take real honest assessment. And we can, we can even say, oh, look at the people in the world. They're doing so far worse things than I'm doing. Oh, my goodness, I could be doing that, but I'm not. So, God, I'm okay. You know what? They're already under condemnation. Do you know where judgment is to begin in Scripture? Not with that, not with anybody else. I mean, not those outside of God, but actually with us. Matter of fact, we read this in Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, the very people of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Or Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, actually, uh, Therefore we must pay very close, or pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. See that? Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Not one will be overlooked, missed. God's a great accountant. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, if we fail to live out the reality of our relationship with God? What does that look like? So we need to be scrutinized ourselves honestly. And that requires us to do this honest assessment, requires us to see the problem of sin. We need to see how bad sin really is. We have to understand sin is poison. We've tried to tame it, popularize it, minimize it, rationalize it, celebrate it, get many people to participate in it, but none of these things can remove the nature or the consequences of it. It only serves to give ammo to the devil and imprison and destroy more lives. In John 10.10, we are told that the thief comes to rob, to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's what sin does, too. It amazes me how quickly our culture has begun to not only tolerate sin, but celebrate it. As people seek to throw off or free themselves from God's righteous standards, they fail to see that they're only forging the chains of their own imprisonment and further hastening their destruction. And how do we respond to that knowledge? How how bad were we really? Do you know where we can look to find out how bad we really were? The cross. When we look at the cross, we consider the price that was paid for us. See, if we're going to scrutinize ourselves honestly, we have to understand the price that was paid for us. The cross is where we see how bad we truly were in the sight of God. Upon the cross, we see the judgment of God executed in all of its awful horror. Upon the cross, we see our sin heaved on Jesus. That porn site you visited, that lie you told, that drug you did, the hate you had towards your brother, the gossip word that you had against another, the show you watched, that is the awful and terrifying judgment of God do you and me, and he took it upon the cross. See, there's a great old hymn entitled, How Great the Father's Love for Us. Some who have been in Christ for some time or might be familiar with that song. There's one verse that I think captures exactly how it applies to us. And it goes like this. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice. 
call out among the scoffers. The reality was is that you and I were there calling out for his crucifixion. It's a hard reality to face that it's our sin that he took upon himself, not someone else's, but our own. But see, it's his death on the cross that ransomed me because really unbelievers are under the lie of the devil that says that there is a veil covering the eyes of uh, those who are unbelievers, that Satan has kept people from seeing the light and life of Christ, but it's through Christ that we were purchased or bought. We were ransomed in essence. And the, next, the, the last verse of that song says, What should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. He ransomed you. He paid the price for your sin. You were caught in the lies of the devil, and his wounds were the price that God required for you to be set free from the penalty of your sin and from the power of your sin. We look forward to the day where we are freed from the very presence of our sin. We have to scrutinize ourselves honestly. And we have to really understand and have an accurate assessment of the position that we are in. On July 8th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards, a pastor at a church in Connecticut, delivered a message from Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 23, or 35, excuse me, 32, 35, and it was uh, from this verse, their foot shall slide in due time. And he delivered this sermon, and an amazing thing happened. I mean, he was uh, nearsighted. He had to see the sermon cl- close up. He read monotone. He wasn't a very charismatic speaker. Read monotone, this message, and what happened is the Spirit of God dropped on the people because he was describing the position that we were in in the sight of God, and people were so fearful that they were actually going to slide into the pit of hell. They started grabbing onto the pillars of the church. People were passing out. I mean, it was amazing. It was like a spark came from his mouth, and it lit a fire that not only was in his church that poured out over the walls and went across New England causing or bringing about what is commonly known as the Great Awakening, where people who had been dead to the things of God became alive to Him. But in this passage, in this wonderful, amazing sermon that you can find uh, online, he says this, There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. He really brought that out, and what it meant was, he said this, it's like as if you're over a fire and God's holding you, and you can do nothing about it. You have no strength, no power of your own, no ability to get out of this. That God, in his benevolence, his mercy, his love, and his grace, is holding you there, even though you want your sin, and you're sinking like lead, almost like a magnet or a moth to a flame, and if he'd let you go, you'd go right down. But of his great mercy and his pleasure, because he loves you and wants you to come back to him, He doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants all to come to the saving knowledge of who Jesus is. He wants people to come to the saving knowledge of him, to experience the joy of being forgiven, to not continually give themselves over to the evil one. It's not you that's keeping yourself out of hell. It's God that's keeping you out of hell because he loves you. It's by his mere pleasure that's keeping you out of hell. That he could let go in a moment. You could die just like that before you even walk out of this place. 
But we have to understand of God's great mercy and his love for us, that he doesn't want to do that, that he's prolonging, but he won't prolong forever. And he's withstanding his judgment, and it's building up like water behind a dam, that, he's, that our judgment's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually he's going to let it go. We have to understand that God is a holy God. He's a loving God. He's a wrathful God, and he's a merciful God. But we must teach and preach the full counsel of God. And if we're to scrutinize ourselves honestly, we have to understand how bad we really are if it were not for the grace and mercy of Almighty God. We would be doomed and we would deserve it. We have to understand that. And God gave the very best that heaven had to offer because he loved you so much. Knowing that any life that we have now is because of his allowance. How do we respond to this? Knowing of God's great love, how do you respond to this love? Such a supreme act of giving of oneself. I mean, it's the the greatest act that you can do. He gives his life for his friends. He gives his life for you. How do we respond to that? I mean, we receive that gift, but we need to, to respond carefully. James actually tells us, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Weep. Understand what your sin is and what God did to save you from it, not so that you would continue in it. Humble yourself, and when you do, you will discover that he will be lifting you up to himself. The humbling comes from knowing and receiving what Jesus did for you on the cross. We give up what we cannot keep in order to gain what we cannot lose. But that's not all we are to do. I've talked a great deal about our vertical relationship with God, but our, relationship, our vertical relationship must overflow into our horizontal relationships with other brothers and sisters and people in the world. And that's why we look at verse 11. James understood that, and he says this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against, against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? He's saying here, we have to learn how to speak about others carefully. How do we talk about other people? I'm amazed at how vitriolic and poisonous our public discourse has become, even online and our social media, how people interact with one another. We think that no one is watching. God sees everything. A good exercise I would encourage you to is not live your life before your friends or followers to live your life before an audience of one. Notice, we're to speak about others carefully, and I'm running out of time, so I'm going to go through these rather quickly. Here's how we speak about others carefully, and this one's going to be a little different. requires us to log our eye first. Here's what I mean by that, log our eye. Um, Some of us suffer from what I call log eye disease, meaning you like to point out the faults in other people and not realize the big faults that you have in your own self. Jesus, that's what he called it, log eye disease, basically, because he said, you point out the plank in your brother's eye when you've got a big giant log in your own. Before you start pointing out what everyone else is doing, take a look in the mirror and find out what, discover what yourself, the, the issues that you have before you start condemning other people. So before you start talking bad about someone else, realize they could be talking about you the same way or about issues in your own life. So when you realize the issues you have, you're, more, you're less likely to talk about other people. So watch out. Log your own eye first. Then number two, you've got to love them. You've got to love people. That's hard to do. This might seem strange, uh, but that's what the law was about. Notice what he says here. You're judging the law. What was the purpose of the law? 
What did, Jesus, what did they say when they asked Jesus, what's the first and greatest commandment of the law? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This fulfills the both law and the prophets. It's loving other people. We're to love other people. Love them enough not to talk about them, not to bring them down, even if it might be true. Love other people enough not to talk about them. Or the reality that I think most of us face is we like to talk about other people to bring ourselves up and make ourselves feel better about who we are. So let's love them enough not to do that. And then thirdly, there are certain issues, certain things that people say to us. We want vengeance. We want people to take action. Give it and leave it to God and let him deal with it. As the scripture says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Give it over to him. That's what real faith is, is saying, I'm going to give this over and let God deal with them, either to save them, bring them to repentance, or condemn them. But I'm going to entrust God to do this. And it may not happen in your timetable. We want immediate satisfaction. But we fail to understand with God, he doesn't forget. He understands. And the greatest thing that could happen is them repenting and turning to Christ and coming to you and asking for forgiveness. That's not going to happen because of your nagging and complaining about it and gossiping about others. It's going to happen when you truly entrust yourself to the Lord and let him deal with it. So today we've learned that there is a step we can't skip, one that we must know and do, and that's real repentance. It applies into our daily relation, our relationship with God and then our daily relationships with others, excuse me, that we are to submit to God completely, scrutinize ourselves honestly, and speak about others carefully. We do this for God's glory, and when we do it, we also find that we increase in our joy in God. So let's not wait on this. Let's practice the repentance the way that God wants us to, so that we might have all, receive all that he has for us in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that you alone are God, that you're not just a thought, that you're not one of many gods, but you are the one true, self-existent, self-sustained, omnipotent, omniscient, transcendent, eminent, amazing, awesome, loving, wrathful, merciful, life-giving God. You are our creator, and we love you. And Lord, we know that we are not worthy of you and we will never be worthy of you in and of ourselves, but it's because of Christ that we are received when we place our faith in him, knowing that you have received his sacrifice for our sins and your wrath and atonement was made. Lord, we thank you for that. If there's someone here today who has not yet embraced you as Lord and Savior of their life, that they are trying to be good enough or trying to be religious enough, Lord, I pray that they might abandon themselves and they might embrace you, finding that when they run to you, you're already running to them. And that you will not condemn them, but you will receive them with open and loving arms. Forgive them of their sins and give them new life with you. And you will remove their guilt and their shame that stains their soul. You will cleanse them and make them white as snow. Lord, we rejoice in what you've done in our midst. And help us to truly practice this step of repentance as we're trying to walk with you knowing that those who don't know you will trip up over it and not go any further, but help us to become and be your friend as we seek to navigate this step with skill, humility, and great love as we bask in your glory and what you've done for us. We thank you, we praise you, and we pray that you might continue to do a work within us and through us, not just here in this campus, but across our campuses, and all over the world. Lord, help us to truly show your love to all nations. 
Thank you for everything you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.